0: My guest this week is John Barry. John is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, a 2004 book on the last global pandemic, the 1918 so-called Spanish flu. Due to the current coronavirus pandemic, the book is a bestseller again, 11 years after its original release. In this interview, we discuss the genesis story of John's book and the lessons of the pandemic of 100 years ago to today. We talk about some of the most interesting aspects of the 1918 pandemic, while also getting into some of the deeper scientific details in comparing the influenza virus to the coronavirus. We also discuss the critical importance of honesty and transparency of leadership in the face of this crisis, the failures of the federal government and its response to COVID-19, and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from
1: it. Timothy, take it away. As business grows, Peter, more employees come on board. They get organized in roles, teams, and divisions. And suddenly, that spirit of customer-centricity starts to disappear. Putting customer first ends up becoming an empty slogan. Zoho is built on Zoho. And that is no different when we talk about the Zoho desk. We have taken on the challenge of serving over 55 million users globally on our clouds around the clock. For us, customer service is not a department or responsibility of some team. It is our entire operation and a commitment that touches everything that we do. We built Zoho Desk to deliver great customer experience, providing right solution at the right time with near real-time information to act quickly. To have a meaningful conversation with your customers, you need customer context, past interactions, links to CRM, bug tracker, projects, long conversations, recent negative feedback, and macro trends. We found that giving these on different tabs can be a huge pain. Hence, we created Zoho Desk that prioritizes tickets with the entire knowledge base on a single screen. And we found that this can save a couple hours a day for an agent. Think about it, an extra day per week saved. Managers can see finer detail on their screens and have time to think more about customer happiness. Zoho Desk built to make customers more empowered, agents more productive, and managers more impactful. Thanks, Timothy. And now
0: on to our interview, which was recorded in front of a live audience. Thank you so much for, for joining the con- conversation. It's uh, great to great to see you, thank you. Um, been looking forward to, to our conversation as well. Um, We'd love to talk a little bit about some of the specifics of the, the virus in 1918. Uh, began, at least records seem to show, uh, you'll correct me where I have any of this off, uh, January of 1918, uh, some of the first reported instances of it. Uh, relatively mild in the early stages, but it, like a lot of coronaviruses, mutated. And the really deadly vein uh, of it came in September of that year. And I believe it's a four-month period where a lot of the killing, you estimate uh, worldwide, somewhere in the the neighborhood of 50 to 100 million at a time when the population of the world was a third of what it is today, uh, 675,000 roughly in the United States alone. Um, Talk a bit about some of the differences in the virus uh in 1918 versus the one that we um are currently facing. yeah uh in fact
2: one of the reasons january was when i was first seen in haskell which was the first place anywhere in the world where there was a report of a lethal virus and the first known outbreak was at uh fort riley and i could actually track people from rural Kansas to Fort Riley, where their families had people with influenza and pneumonia, which is why I came up with the hypothesis. It based on, you know, mutation rates and dating and modeling and so forth, it looks now that the virus probably was around longer uh, than January 1918, possibly as early as 1915, 1916 maybe. uh, That's all based on modeling. We don't really know. Uh, I think the virus initially in its first wave was not very good at infecting people. Uh, It skipped more of the world than it hit. It was pretty widespread in Western Europe. Uh, It did hit some U.S. cities, but a lot of U.S. cities, probably most U.S. cities, uh, did not experience any spring wave. There was not a single death in Los Angeles in the spring of 1918. Not one. Uh, uh, But the virus did get better at infecting people and turn more virulent. Uh, uh, That 50 to 100 million figure, the first person to come up with that was McFarlane Burnett, a Nobel laureate uh, who spent most of his life studying influenza. Uh, It's been pretty much backed up by epidemiological research more recently. the two biggest differences between coronavirus and influenza virus. Uh, number one, influenza mutates much, much, much more rapidly. Coronavirus does mutate. But they're both RNA viruses. RNA viruses are single strand. Uh, a DNA virus has you know, that double helix. So that double helix serves as a proofreading mechanism. The two strands because they have to match so they mutate much less rapidly all rna viruses uh, mutate faster than dna viruses but coronavirus does have a proofreading mechanism to correct its mutations uh, which is quite unusual for an rna virus uh, so that's one of the differences in 1918 in the spring even though it was generally mild there were Plenty of pockets uh, where it looked really, really dangerous. Uh, Plenty of hints that it contained within itself uh, the possibility of turning very, very lethal. There has been incredible surveillance of this virus. There isn't the slightest hint anywhere in the world uh, that this virus could become more lethal that there's any mutation that's moving in that direction. There's some question that there are some mutations that may make it easier, may allow it, uh, make it more efficient at infecting uh, cells. That's possible, although there's been a lot of pushback on that, but there has been a mutation that at least in a cell culture uh, looks like like it might be the case. Another huge difference, very important, is timing, duration. Uh, incubation period for influenza is one to four days. Most people get sick at two. This virus is two to 14 days. Most people get sick a little over five. You're sick longer. You shed virus longer. All this, it, it, when, when influenza strikes a community, whether it was in 1918 or today with seasonal influenza. Uh, it'll go through any given particular community basically in six to 10 weeks. Uh, in 1918, probably two-thirds of all the deaths occurred in about a 14- or 15-week period, but in a particular community, it was even faster than that. that. And the coronavirus, as it moves much more slowly, it it's just hangs around longer. That created much of If you had closed everything down, In 1918, the duration would have been much, much less. The stress on the economy would have been much, much less, uh, and so forth and so on. So that's one of the big problems that coronavirus uh, creates. Uh, Both of them uh, transmit before people have any symptoms. Uh, For coronavirus, that's a longer period, Uh, but by the same token, that length of time gives you an opportunity if you do it right to do the testing and the contact tracing which is being done in many places around the world quite effectively not so effectively in the united states in influenza you wouldn't have time to do that really because of the incubation period uh so i guess that's probably the biggest difference is, is the uh timing and
0: yeah some of the similarities though are uh, the sort of disinformation is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts.
2: Uh, I mean, the, the cytokine storm is a killing mechanism. Uh, that's the same. Uh, although in 1918, many people died of secondary bacterial infections, but the way the 1918 virus would infect pretty much every organ, which is not the case for influenza normally, uh, the way this virus infects pretty much every organ, you know, cardiovascular, strokes, uh, neurological, uh, you know, whether I mean, I could could quote from from the book to you know the kidneys, everywhere, and and that's what we're discovering about this virus. Primarily a respiratory virus, and yet it's getting everywhere. So we only have. It was funny um, when H5N1 first surfaced and you read some pathology reports and they wrote that, you know, these findings have never previously been reported in influenza. No, they never read the 1918 pathology reports. No finding from, from bird flu had not been reported uh, in 1918. So you begin to wonder whether or not there's, some generalization you can make about possible pandemic viruses that jump species that are respiratory. I, I don't. I, I haven't. I've just begun to think about that myself. I'm. It's a pretty small sample size, uh, so you don't really want to generalize on a sample size that
0: small. Um, yep. So I won't go further on that. Yeah. You. You know. No, it's great. You. Yeah, you, it's... you. You talk about how in 1918. Ah, uh, people would go from in basically twenty four hours from first symptoms presenting to bleeding not only from their eye that their their mouth and nose, but also their eyes and ears. Um, you talked about the people turning blue to the point where it was uh, unclear what race they were because right. of the deprivation of of oxygen. Um, you also talk about uh, the fact that it was a disease that uh, attacked mostly the people that were in the prime of their life, very different from this one. Uh, it was not necessarily the young and the old. It was actually the people that were like in their 20s and 30s. And part of it was the fact that they were healthy, uh, that their system was fighting it so hard. Uh, you've talked about how it was a uh, a war fought in the lungs uh, and that young people's lungs could fight harder. But it was actually that fight that that often killed them as well. Right. I, you said... You just said it, so. <laughs> you know,
2: your immune system a changes as you age. It's strongest when you're younger. Uh, and the 1918 virus, uh, along with COVID-19, uh, could bind to cells in the lung itself. Seasonal influenza does not do that. Uh, H5N1 could bind to cells in the lung but not to the upper respiratory tract, which is why it's not transmittable between people. Uh, 1918 virus, both upper respiratory tract, making it easily transmissible and cells deep in the lung. So you're essentially starting out with viral pneumonia and the same thing with coronavirus. Uh, And the immune system has some very lethal weapons and it was throwing uh, everything at it, at the virus, and the battlefield was the lung. So it was largely destroying the lung release, the lung's ability to function. Uh, And that is a cytokine storm. That is the mechanism through which uh, people are dying today. The irony is that now younger people's immune system uh, in general is strong enough to fight the disease off completely, or at least keep it mild. Uh, Whereas in the elderly, their immune system is not strong enough to prevent them from getting the disease or a serious manifestation of the disease, yet it is strong enough to create that cytokine storm in the lung. Uh, So sort of a catch-22
0: situation. I, I want uh, get, to get soon to some of the implications for, um, for the current situation and your own sort of thoughts about, uh, you know, lessons from 1918 that we might still be, be able to learn from in the current circumstances. I do want to linger over a couple more thoughts, though, with regards to 1918. One, one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of the book was the description of Woodrow Wilson and that Wilson was singularly focused on World War I Uh, obviously the U S had uh, joined the battle the year prior, uh, was, you know, focused like a laser on this. And like a lot of leaders, because we were on a war footing, uh, don't mean to excuse it, but it was a fact, uh, that he, there was censorship of the press. And as a result of the censorship of the press, certainly echoes, we see a little bit of, of maybe certainly not to the same extent today, but there are echoes of disinformation and people acting on wrong information. Uh, to their own detriment perhaps. But, uh, in fact, one of the reasons why it was called the Spanish flu is Spain had not entered the war and still had, uh, a, a, did not have the, okay. the, um, uh, submission or the, 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 the press was, was essentially allowed to to, to report more faithfully than were many countries. And so and on top of the fact that the King also uh, contracted uh, influenza during this period as well. Um, so it, it was fascinating to me, this evolution of the process of, of Wilson, his impact, both in terms of his his silencing those who might spread good information, uh, but then also this tremendous irony that he contracted it himself on his trip to Europe. And really, um, you highlight how his contracting that uh, really changed the trajectory of the world uh, because of his giving into the, uh, the demands of Clemenceau uh, during the negotiation of the end of the war. Can you talk a little bit about that? One of the most fascinating learnings for me uh, in the book. Sure. Uh, you
2: know, first, let me go back to what you were saying about the censorship in the, in the U S in in Europe, there was outright censorship in the U S. It was more of a self censorship, which was very, very effective. Nonetheless, uh, the, The government did pass a law that made it punishable by 20 years in prison to, quote, utter, write, print, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States. This law was actually upheld uh, by the Supreme Court. It was rigorously enforced. A congressman was sentenced to 10 years in jail under that law. Oliver Wendell Holmes, generally known as a champion of free speech, wrote the opinion upholding the law. Uh, Two phrases came out of it that uh, you're familiar with. One was you don't shout fire in a crowded theater. And the other uh, was clear and present danger. Um, You know, Holmes used those uh, arguments to support, to convince them to to vote, uh, uphold the law. Um, But you had this threat. Of of enforcement for any criticism of the government. Um, at the same time, they commit uh, form something called the Committee for Public Information, a propaganda machine. Uh, the architect of that committee uh, committee said, uh, "Nothing in experience tells us that uh, truth is superior to falsehood, and all that matters is the inspirational value of an idea." Uh, so so there were roughly 100,000 so-called four-minute men who would go out before every public meeting, uh, whether it was a vaudeville show or a school board meeting, any public gathering, and give a very brief talk. So that that is the context uh, between the – and everything, of course, was positive. There's no negative news uh, in practically every newspaper in the country. Uh, willingly uh, fell into line. And to give Wilson you know, some justification, the largest demographic group in the country were German descent, questioned whether they would fight against Germany. Uh, Ireland in 1916, the Easter Uprising, a lot of Irish uh, in the United States, would they fight on the side of Britain? Uh, even in in World War Two, uh, Ireland became a haven uh, for Nazis uh, a- after the war. Uh, I I even well, it's another story, but I went to Northern Ireland to write about some things and ran across so many people who had been sentenced to death after war in absentia, uh, uh, who were living freely in Ireland. it's a Pretty strong anti British feeling. So, this infrastructure existed uh, in the country, and influenza came along and sort of fell into that infrastructure, was captured by it. So, Wilson never made a public statement about the disease, uh, but national public health leaders, there was no Tony Fauci back then, national leaders were saying things like, This is ordinary influenza by another name. And you've already described what could happen and some of the symptoms. People very rapidly learned this was not ordinary influenza by another name, um, which contributed to, in the worst cases, almost a breakdown of society. Um, you didn't ask me about that. You asked me about Wilson at uh, Versailles. One of the, according to uh, the comprehensive reviews of the pandemic published in the 20s, um inter, you know by multiple countries uh, all noted the same thing uh that second only two pulmonary complications were neurological disorders uh people were uh disoriented uh psychotic uh paranoid uh the people oliver sacks wrote about in the awakening hypothesized that, uh, that they were victims of the influenza virus. Um, and we're also finding coronavirus today has many neurological uh, complications. Um, you know, in autopsy reports in 1918, they actually found changes in the brain uh, caused either directly or indirectly by the virus. Uh, somehow it crossed the blood-brain barrier or toxins that uh, the immune system might have done something. I'm not sure exactly what the explanation is, but there were physical manifestations in, in the brain. Um, and in uh, Wilson did get influenza while he was negotiating the peace treaty, and it had a pretty severe attack. Uh, you know, very high temperature. Uh, um, His doctor actually thought initially he had been poisoned because he had gastrointestinal symptoms, which was not uncommon with with 1918. Not that uncommon today with coronavirus either. Uh, Anyway, everyone around him noted changes in his thinking, uh, whether it was uh, Erwin Hoover, who was a White House usher, or Herbert Hoover, who was uh, there, Versailles. They all said his mind wasn't functioning properly. Uh, They had never seen him like this. It was a very hard time for him. Uh, And prior to, or that he literally couldn't remember in the afternoon decisions, major decisions made before noon. Uh, And prior to his illness, he had been adamant and insisting uh, that The peace treaty include the 14 points, or most of the principles that he had articulated as to why the United States had ended the war. Uh, And what he'd called a peace without victory. Uh, Didn't want to punish Germany. And uh, you know, Clemenceau called him pro-German, and so forth and so on. Uh, Clemenceau's nickname, incidentally, was the Tiger. After he's sick, He's actually still negotiating before he's recovered from his sickbed uh, in this weakened state and mentally not up to it. And uh, he caved in on everything, pretty much everything. Clemenceau threw him a bone in the League of Nations, but that's the only uh, surviving element uh, of the 14 points. Uh, It was enough that, you know, he had entered Paris, a hero to the world. Uh, Keynes called him the greatest fraud on earth. Uh, uh, A dozen of his top aides, two of whom went on to become secretaries of state, met and discussed to decide whether they would all resign en masse. Uh, Half of them did resign, half decided not to, but You know, the disillusionment, the disgust with the treaty. Wilson himself said if he was German, he wasn't sure he would sign it. Uh, You know, it's possible that he might have caved in on everything, even if he had not gotten sick, uh, because he cared so much about the League of Nations. And, you know, maybe Clemenceau would have insisted enough. But, you know, Wilson was as stubborn as anybody who's an obsessive personality and not given to compromise on anything. He probably could have gotten uh, something like the treaty through the Senate creating the League of Nations if he had been willing to make some compromises on that. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was not his personality. You you were for him or against him. Uh, At any rate... You know we don't know what would have happened all we know is what did happen he did get sick he was disoriented he was weak physically and mentally uh and unable to reason and uh he did cave in yeah and of course yeah. that was a major
0: contributor to uh the war
2: the second world
0: war yeah fascinating story thank you for for, for retelling portions of it there john um, I wanted to, I do want to fast forward ahead to lessons from that experience for today. And actually, John, if you don't mind, I'd love to, as somebody who's so steeped in this and the conclusion of your book is so prescient as to, again, written in 04, um, is so prescient as, um, what, what would likely come, what the next, uh, pandemic might look like, uh, even its origin and, and the, the, the reasons behind it. Um, I'm curious, when you saw this beginning to mount as somebody with much more than passing knowledge and, and interest in this, um, how, did, how did it affect the way in which you, you operated? Did you, uh, h- how long did you wait before you started quarantining yourself? I'm curious if you just being so steeped in this, if you had deeper recognition than, than others around you.
2: Well, in the middle of January, it was pretty apparent that this was going to be a worldwide pandemic. Uh, and I actually sat down. I was sitting in an airport board, and, and I remember it pretty well. It was my mother's birthday. I was coming back in, uh, like, January 20th or something. And I decided, well, nobody else has written this, so I'll write it an op-ed saying that this thing was the working title was This Virus Cannot Be Contained, although it was, ended up being published uh, by the Washington Post. As a question, can this virus be contained? Probably not. I decided to pull my punches a little bit. Uh, But it was very obvious, I thought, to anybody who understood anything about these things. Uh, I had no special knowledge. Just what I was reading in the newspapers, I wasn't getting any other reports. Um, And I was puzzled from the beginning that the government wasn't Taking more aggressive action. Uh, I remember sending a draft of that op ed to Mike Osterholm, whose name you probably rec- recognize, uh, one of the most uh, frequently, uh, frequently quoted uh, experts on these kinds of things, probably the leading expert on pandemic preparedness in the country. Uh, Mike's a really good friend of mine. And I sent him a draft. I said, you know, I mean, what's going on here? You know, they say there is no community transmission in the United States. He says, well, they're not testing. How do we know? Uh, You know, that was a major mistake, and you can't blame Trump for that one. Uh, The initial guidelines were well below White House decision making uh, in terms of whom to test. In terms of when I I live in New Orleans, uh, you know, Mardi Gras clearly uh, contributed to spread uh in this city uh, for a brief time new orleans had the highest uh, uh fastest growth rate in the world but at, at the time of mardi gras which is not just a couple of days it's several weeks long process you know i didn't do anything because i didn't think there was any community transmission here i was quite prepared to to quarantine myself uh, but i there's no need to do it if the virus isn't in your community. Uh, obviously, I was mistaken. Uh, we now know it was many places in the United States. By then, Mardi Gras it was February 25th. Uh, you know, once once it did surface, I've been pretty good. I, I'm trying to protect myself. You know, I'm over, over 70. Yeah, I know I don't look it right. Uh, you're all supposed to smile. Uh, you did, thank you. <laughs> uh, so my wife is too. So we're we're concerned. Fortunately, we don't have any other underlying conditions other other than our age. Uh, but I did know, and you know, it comes down to following the public health guidelines and and com- I mean complying with them. Uh, you know, I, I guess I've written two op eds for the Times and two for the Post. Uh, all of them essentially conveyed the same message. Uh, the great irony here is, you know, that we can, we can't control it, but we can sort of contain it. Countries around the world, including Western societies, have been able to do that. And we're not. Doing it. You know, as far as I'm concerned, we've got, we don't statistically have the worst record in the world. Probably the UK does uh, in terms of per capita deaths. Uh, Sweden's ahead of us in per capita deaths. Uh, You know, they're experimenting with their herd immunity, which is not going very well. uh, Less than 10% of the population has been exposed. And as I said, they're on a per capita basis lead the world and are. Lead us. I think they're second to the UK. Uh, you know, the lesson that came out of 1918 there were two lessons. Uh, and when the Bush administration, you know, passed a seven billion dollar bill for pandemic preparedness, bioterrorism, stuff like that, part of that involved the planning process to figure out what to do if pandemics pandemic struck. And, you know, I was part of the early stages of the, that process, not the detailed writing of the plans, but the conceptualizing. And what I would always say in every meeting was you tell the truth. That is the number one lesson from 1918. And, you know, I closed the epilogue of the book. There have been four different epilogues, incidentally, uh, or afterwards, uh, but they at least the last page or so has been the same. You know, you save lives and you maintain order. If you let people know what to expect and what's going on and including what you don't know, they uh, didn't do that in 1918 because we were a war. It wasn't in Wilson's self-interest, but he did think it was in the national interest. Right now, the truth has not been told from the White House. Uh, And it is going to, it has killed people and it's going to continue to kill people. Uh, There are countries where they did tell the truth. Uh, You know, Singapore, there was outright panic initially. Uh, Their prime minister uh, gave an extremely informed, candid, transparent, being the operative word these days, uh, speech, calmed everything down. You know, Singapore hasn't been perfect. They've had further outbreaks, but they've they've done pretty well. South Korea, the same thing. Germany, the same thing. Merkel had a 77 percent approval rating. The highest of her of her career by a wide margin uh, because she was candored, let let everything hang out there. And they you know, Germany did not have such a great start in terms of testing and tracing, but they caught up rapidly. And in this country, you all know what has happened. It's incomprehensible to me.
0: One of our audience members, the chief information officer of a major technology company, had a question for John about transparency. This audience member made the point that if you're transparent, whether the news is good or bad, people will know what to do. But there appears to be a lot of opaqueness in the government's communications with the American public. This audience member asked about the psychology behind that and how that squares with John's earlier comment that if we're transparent authoritatively, then the right outcomes will happen in the general population.
2: To oversimplify, you know, you've got, it's become a partisan issue. If you, you know, Trump has made a huge thing out of it. You know, I was talking to a congressman, uh, several congressmen last night and a Texas congressman told me that there is a bar in his district where they will not let you in if you wear a mask. It's become a, a you know, a statement of your masculinity, uh, although, the, I mean, or I don't know if femininity would be. But if you're, you know, two people wearing another congressman was saying he was wearing a mask cross paths with someone else wearing a mask and the other guy said, ah, you're a Democrat. Well, it shouldn't be that way, but the mixed messaging has first confused people. And then it hadn't helped in terms of CDC initially also saying, don't wear a mask and then reversing itself. Uh, On the particular issue of masks uh, that's, you know, has been a problem, Uh, you know, but For months, Trump was trivializing it. Then it was perceived as, and and, you know, so was Fox. Uh, It was perceived as a partisan ploy to undermine his presidency. So even though the information is, and then they started questioning the the death tolls, saying that those aren't really accurate, that they're phony numbers, and yesterday, Pence writes a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying, don't worry about it. There's no second wave. It's all overblown by the media. Um, So if you're not particularly informed, if you're watching Fox, and you're not going to take this nearly as seriously, Um, you know, that is an oversimplification, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, You know, I'm part of a, a messaging group trying to figure out how to reach people. And we've got folks in that group from Ogilvy Research and Palantir who are extremely sophisticated on behavioral science. And, you know, they can give you all sorts of subgroups and personality types and so forth and so on and how you reach each one. Some of them are liberals. uh, You know, but I think that the main over, well, overweening that's the right word uh, problem has been the white house is when he says one thing you know i mean tony fauci's got death threats you know why, why, why you know half not half but several public health state public health commissioners have left their jobs in the last couple of weeks because of the pressure on them and and, and sometimes people outside their homes uh sometimes just email threats sometimes just verbal abuse are tied up uh why is that the case you know because they, they haven't been backed up by authority and that authority is the white house uh you know i think had you done that you know to me i think the dumbest thing trump has done as a politician is his handling of this. I mean, this could have handed him a re-election. If he had gone out there and taken charge aggressively, I think he would have the approval ratings that Merkel had. You know, in the first state, people rally around leaders in a crisis. Uh, And if you recall, initially, he had his highest approval ratings of his presidency uh, shortly after the country closed down. When he said we're at war with the virus, uh, but that approach only lasted for about eight or nine days, and then he started to slip backwards. And you know the hydroxychloroquine and you know everything else. So that, that that's is why I think the the messaging has been clear as to what you should do, but not everybody believes it. They may believe that that's what you should do, but for either loyalty to the White House or they don't think it's that serious and it's overblown, you know, they don't think it's necessary. And that messaging has not been consistent.
0: Another audience member, the digital and tech chief of a major real estate company, asked how John saw the current pandemic playing out and his prognosis for our country in terms of what to expect going forward. She also asked whether he he would consider writing a book about the current pandemic.
2: Uh, The last question first, a few weeks ago, I would have said absolutely not. You know, I'm in the middle of working on another book. I'd have to suspend work on that. Uh, But more recently, you know, I'm not committing to it, but it's a, it's, it's a possibility. Uh, In terms of, prognosis, I'm not sure prognosis for what in terms of the scientists as I'm sure you're all aware, particularly given, you know, what Peter spends much of his time doing and uh, technology and so forth practically every lab in the world has shifted its focus, you know, I'm exaggerating but still you know They're all, everybody's looking at COVID-19. There is more sharing of information than there has ever been uh, between normally competing scientists. And I'm sure you all know scientists can be as competitive as anybody else. There is more interdisciplinary work now than there has ever been on any other subject. Uh, you know, people are trying to solve the problem. You know, I, am not a scientist, but I'm on a Google group of, uh, over 200 scientists in over 30 countries. Every one of whom, pretty much every one of whom is published in nature, you know, a very, very top journal. And, you know, just the trading of information on these emails, uh, and the collaboration there is extraordinary. And you know, I've talked to some folks at uh, UCSF uh, about interdisciplinary uh, things going on there. Physicists, you know, applying their uh, just looking at the problem, they look at things differently and and applying their knowledge. Uh, not biophysicists, but physicists, physicists. Uh, so. In the science, that's similar to what happened in 1918. And, you know, we made incredible progress very rapidly. Uh, and of course, we have many more tools than they had in 1918. Now, if you were asking about what I think the course of the disease is, you know, I don't know because it depends on what we do. Uh, the virus isn't going anywhere. Susceptibility is more important than seasonality. I think we're now, you know, it's 90 degrees here in New Orleans. It's 90 degrees in Texas or more. It's 90 degrees in Arizona, Florida. Uh, I wrote a, a piece in the, I guess it was the Times in, in late April on this and also co-authored a uh, um, a study with uh, Osterholm and Mark Lipsitch, a a Harvard uh, epidemiologist, uh, saying largely the same thing. Uh, 95% of the population is still susceptible to the virus. It's highly transmissible. And although viruses, the respiratory viruses, tend to be able to survive less long in high temperatures outside the body, than in low temperatures, that's true. It's probably true of this virus, although we don't know it for an absolute certainty. Uh, in addition, in winter, people are indoors instead of outdoors. Uh, so you get respiratory diseases in much more in winter than summer. But with such a high percentage of the population susceptible, then I don't anticipate a significant drop-off in the, in the disease. And as you know, as I just said, it's already in the 90s throughout the South and we're seeing plenty of spread. Uh, we never really had a first wave. We stopped the first wave. If we hadn't, we probably have half a million, at least half a million dead today in the United States. Uh, but we intervened. But by stopping it, that you know, kept so much of the population susceptible, the virus is still going to work its way through the population sooner or later until we get good therapeutic drugs or a vaccine. If, you know, we don't get those, the vaccine for four years, although I'm much more optimistic, there's no reason to think it'd be anything like that. We'll end up with 60 or 70% of the population exposed to the virus, infected by the virus. It'll just take a lot longer. Uh, if we don't intervene at all, we could get to that number, uh, in six months or 10 months or something like that. We are intervening. You know, we're not intervening in the way we were on April 1st, but we are still trying to intervene. You know, it now looks like the virus is not all that easy to catch. It's, you know... If somebody sneezes right on you, yeah, you're you're going to get a pretty heavy viral load. Uh, but if you're walking past somebody on the street, that's not that's pretty low risk. Uh, fomites, in other words, things like doorknobs, that seems to be lower risk than we originally feared. Uh, there are two studies. One said 20 percent of those infected are responsible for 80 percent of the cases and others says 10% They're responsible for 80% of the cases. You know, if you can, ide- and we know from SARS and MERS that some people shed more virus than others. Uh, trouble is finding them and, and, and getting them to stay home. And in addition, other super spreading events occur from situations rather than an individual happens to shed more virus. So in terms of actual projections, to quote my my op-ed, I would see not so much a series of waves and a second wave, as I would see a series of swells with an occasional angry white cap. Uh, How high that swell gets really depends on what happens in that particular community. You know, uh, living in New Orleans, you know, uh, another analogy would be we could see a hurricane storm surge if we really screw up. You know, the the piece that I, the, the study that I co-authored with uh, uh, Osterholm and Lipsich uh, talked about three scenarios. Uh, one very similar to what I just described, one really a huge wave coming in the fall, uh, which personally I think is less likely. Uh, I guess the point of raising it in that study was you have to prepare for the worst case. Uh, and another is a little bit, essentially the same thing as the, is the swells, you know, slight difference, uh, maybe sharper, but so in terms of the course of the disease, you know, Right now, I'm less optimistic than I was uh, because of the numbers coming out of uh, Texas, Florida, Arizona, and so forth, or for that matter, California. Uh, but you know, you can still, to a significant extent, protect yourself, and that's pretty important. Uh, I think maybe right now, a best case would be if things got bad enough. In some of the states that are now seeing significant growth, that could remind everybody that it's not over and they may rededicate themselves to social distancing and wearing the mask and so forth and so on. And a a realistic worst case is that doesn't happen and we do get a really, really big outbreak. But again, it can be regional, it doesn't have to be national. And you can probably still protect yourself, but it's harder if there's more community transmission.
0: Yep. Well, John, thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us uh, this afternoon for a stimulating conversation. Very interesting to hear both about your uh, in-depth research that led to this really phenomenal book. For those who haven't read it, the Great Influenza is certainly worth your time, as well as for sharing your your uh, perspectives on. Uh, what might be ahead uh, for us in in the current crisis. But uh, we really appreciate your time and your insights. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Sandeep Dandlani, the Chief Digital Officer of Mars.